My guest today is George Taktak, entrepreneur, mental health activist, and founder of How Mental, a social movement of more than a quarter of a million people whose mission is to make mental health care accessible to all. The genesis for How Mental started some years ago, born out of George's own struggles and his experience of a harrowing mental pain. George studied economics and went into banking. Fairly rapidly, he realised that was not for him. But subsequently, his grandfather started losing his ability to speak as a result of Alzheimer's disease. This was a decisive moment for George. He decided to find a way to bridge the 5,000 kilometre gap separating him from his grandfather in Lebanon. And he developed an app to express a whole language of emotions that you could feel through vibrations. George was convinced he could develop this app with a sense of touch to connect physically distant people. He subsequently lost his grandfather and his grandmother and their profound loss led him to a time of terrible suffering, grief and depression. Little by little, George returned to himself and to his original concept combining technology and emotion and launched How Mental, which grew exponentially during COVID and now is a pioneering force in the mental health space for all. It's for people and organisations around the world and it's on a mission to make well-being a global priority. George and I had a fabulous high-speed conversation about the highs, the lows, and the challenges of humanising and scaling mental health support. We also discussed how George's creative talents, he is both an artist and a poet, no less, contribute vitally to his high-growth business and his well-being. You are listening to Double Espresso with D with me, Dee Sterling. I love a great story. So in this season, I will talk to incredible people who've experienced huge, pivotal moments of real change by choice or by circumstance. From stories of reinvention and inspiring career pivots to the dramatic shifts that happen in moments of crisis, I hope you can join us each week to hear about their fascinating and inspiring journeys. Welcome everyone to Double Espresso with D. I am super psyched to welcome my guest today, the fabulous George Tech Hi, George. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm great. Honestly, I've not done that many podcasts. And so I couldn't think of doing a podcast with anyone better than yourself right now. So yeah. Oh my God, that went straight to my heart. Thank you, George. So listen, we're going to jump right in. So some years ago, after graduating from the London School of Economics, you started your career in banking, which I guess in some ways was what you'd been pre-programmed to do, right? For all the reasons one might imagine. And I love the fact that, um, I don't know whether it was your first day, but very, very early on, you turn up in a bank in a canary wharf wearing a red suit. Is that correct? That is correct, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I appreciate a bit of Paul Smith. I appreciate a red suit. I, li- I like to wear something nice. And I didn't realize that would be so odd in a bank, to be honest. I had no idea. Well, here's the thing. It, I guess sometimes when you walk into these environments, they are structures that 
were unfamiliar with, right? And you were obviously, you know, younger at the time. You're still obviously very young. But, you know, you weren't expecting that everyone would be in a grey suit, which would have been the norm, yeah. right? And a black pair of shoes and looking a certain way. It's the uniform of sort, right? And the uniform implies that conforming and everyone going in a similar direction, looking at a similar way, using the same language, etc. And in a way, knowing what came after, that feels to me like a bit of a, a metaphor, that red suit, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it was it was quite an interesting time in my life because, you know, growing up, my dad was a banker. And so that was a, a big part of the reason why I, I was pre-programmed to become a banker. I had a very difficult relationship with him and I wanted to prove that I could do what he could do and I could do it better. And it was also just very much the norm going to LSE and going out and studying economics. But being at university was one of the first times where I really had the space to express myself. And so being a student, having that kind of freedom, and then finding yourself chucked into a new environment where suddenly everything is is programmed, but not by my dad in that case, but by the world in which my dad existed, it was a really odd experience. And, and so it did give me a small sign that there was something potentially awry, but Honestly, I was in such a great state and I was I was very innocent, I was very naive and I was very excited to get going. So, you know, it almost didn't bother me. I let it slip, but you know, you look back now and you can see these little signs. Tell me about that. There was a pivot of sorts, but also um perhaps brought on by the fact that your grandfather was unwell, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Tell me what happened then. So, obviously I started working in the bank and that was fine, but it became very clear to me that it wasn't somewhere that I could, you know, do lots of different things in. Um, you were kind of assigned your one role. And I'd learned up until that point that not only was I an analytical person, able to do the maths, able to do the logic, like that was all fine, but I was also very creative. And I really need to put my heart into something. I really need to feel something for me to, you know, continue doing it. And so that wasn't appreciated by by the <laughs> bank. I would have been stuck in my little box for a very long time. And so when my granddad was suffering with Alzheimer's, it was just a very obvious thing for me to kind of take the leap and say, this is what I want to do. You know, nothing has meant more to me than my family. You know, I mentioned I had a difficult relationship with my dad. Uh, he was quite abusive. And so me, my mom and my younger brothers were a unit you know, and so supporting each other and, and having those really strong family ties was something that I always knew was so fundamental and so important. And, and I just wanted to be there for him. You know, I was struck by the idea that like he could be suffering in a bed and because of the Alzheimer's, he was unable to speak. So he could be suffering there, unable to speak, unable to, you know, pick up the phone, talk to us, call us, connect with anyone outside of the physical room that he was in. So I think something that I've always felt just wandering around reality is that there's so much potential and so many things that sort of slip between the cracks and I've never been the kind of person to just accept things for the way that they are. I always think, why can't we do it better? And so with him, it was a this very heartfelt idea that the way that we communicated in person was no longer 
through words, it was actually through touch. You know, it was a hug, it was a kiss, it was holding his hand. And so I wanted to be able to do that whenever we were apart, because, you know, that was that was the way that we communicated. And it was really, honestly, like mind boggling to me that no one had been doing this. No one had been looking into this. No one had understood this. And it is uh, these small moments that are the ones that make us feel most connected to someone. You know, when you just catch their eye, you know, when you just put your hand on their lap and or like hold their hand and they feel it. And so there's a whole wealth of communication that I just realized was completely missing. And so I started researching our sense of touch, learned how powerful it is, is such a fundamental thing for us. And we take it so for granted, even in just, you know, the way that it releases hormones, you know, everything. So yeah, I wanted to explore that. So you were exploring this and, 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 also from a technological perspective, right? And you were some way down to developing something which was unheard of at the time. And then, sadly, your beloved grandfather passed away. How did you cope with the, the grief? Um, so that was the first time that I'd ever lost someone, um, at least someone that I'm close to. And I can't describe it in any other way than... I remember just being on the bus that same day, like hearing the news. And I just felt like the color was just completely like sucked out of life. There was just, it was basically black and white. And for me, because I'd put so much of the purpose in helping my granddad, um, the idea that he wasn't there just meant that this had no point, you know, this had no purpose. So, you know, with him, it was a really long process of just sort of not knowing what I wanted and I think you know a few years later my grandma unfortunately passed away as well you know it just happens that way right like you know when and and I remember with her it was actually more painful because you know she was the one who was around you know like providing us food and staying with us and sitting with us and my granddad was just <laughs> off in the garden the whole time just yeah. picking fruits and whatever so when my grandma passed away it was really interesting because I completely yeah, I was just, I was just incapable. You know, I, I couldn't do anything, but. Do you think it was profound depression as a result of just the loss? I think we're never taught to understand death. You know, we're never taught to understand grief either. So the idea of losing someone to me, you know, someone, uh, you know me, I feel really deeply and I just couldn't make sense of it. You know, I was like, what is this meant to be? Am I meant to get over this at some point? I don't see myself ever getting over it. And obviously the answer is for anyone that knows who's who's been through grief is that, you know, you don't ever get over it. You just have a different relationship with it every single day. And with them, I with, with my grandma, actually, um, I had this really powerful realization. So firstly, don't judge yourself when you're grieving. I decided to watch <laughs> a lot of comedy and I was laughing. D, I, I was laughing like there was no tomorrow because laughter and tears are on the other, are two sides of the same coin. So it was really a way for me to just process it. And since then with both of them, honestly, I have this really strong lesson that I learned, which was that, you know, they're not really gone. Actually, my grandma and my grandpa both represented different ideas to me. And those ideas will never die. You know, those values that they held, the the people that they were, the way that they spoke, those are all ideas that I adopt, that I transmit, and other people will feel through me and also transmit to other people. So the idea of them 
never goes away. That's so beautiful as well, isn't it? Because you feel that they're there. But how did you, because I know, I know you had some understandably very tough moments. How did you manage to kind of turn the corner? Mm. So um, at first I actually gave up, you know, that was the first thing. So I can't say that I'm one of those people that just sort of continued as is. Like I was that person who was like, there's no point doing this. I'm, I'm not going to do For it For how anymore. long did that last? But... You know, <laughs> I know you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'd actually also managed to somehow get this trip, be part of this trip to India with the British Council to go and see the digital startup scene in India. Well, I'd, I just thought to myself, all these people have their ideas, and their ideas are great. You know, like, like I'm not going to. I won't dismiss their ideas, but I feel like I have a great idea too. And I feel like I want to share that. And I had no presentation ready, like literally nothing. And I was like, and there wasn't even a time allocated for it. I was just like, please, can I present? Because, you know, even though I don't, I didn't tell you this in advance, I just really want to do it. And they were like, sure. And I essentially got some screens up from the app that I designed. And then, and I just basically walked them through the app and I told them the story of where it came from. And everyone else who presented had all this feedback, which was, you know, these really like hardcore questions and things. And there there was just a general air of like something quite critical. And so when it came to my presentation, I was like, oh my God, they're going to be so critical. What's going to happen now? And I swear to God, D, every single person, like the first person who just put their hand up was just like, George, I know someone who's working for a mental health charity. Would you be interested in connecting with them? And I said, yeah, I mean, sure. Is that a question? Like, okay. Um, next question, George, I just wanted to say what you're doing is amazing. You know, my, my granddad went through something similar and I just want to say it's amazing. I'm like, okay. And everyone, de- there was such an outpouring of love. It was just insane. And they said, George, this isn't just for your granddad. This is for everyone. Was that a light bulb moment, like an epiphany for you when you heard that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It just, I think unconsciously I was looking for that, you know, that support and that love. But, you know, I I didn't know where it was going to come from. And I just needed that kind of affirmation, that kind of realization that the things that I find important in this life are also things that other people find important, you know, family connection. And, uh, and I needed to hear it. And also, you know, strikes me that despite your grief and your pain and feeling profoundly low to the point that you you couldn't function in some respects on some days and you couldn't get yourself out of that chasm, you got yourself on the plane to India. Yeah. <laughs> but you you didn't stop because you it was on your mind. You got yourself on the plane and so there was a convergence of circumstances. But when you got through that sort of oceanic tide of pain what did you learn about yourself that you brought to the next step on the journey the thing about my grandparents uh, especially is that they just had this unconditional love for me complete support and I really realized that if I didn't have that in the world I was going to need to bring that for myself I think it's actually impossible to bring exactly the same energy that they brought to me. But no, I I really think, you know, being able to take care of yourself, being able to support yourself 
and know what you need because often these things we're getting these things we're receiving this support from lots of different places and it's only when it goes away that we actually realize like oh wow I was I was really depending on that and what is that and how can I and how can I bring that into my life intentionally to that end what what would the two or three things be that you do today intentionally supporting yourself so I think the first thing is authenticity. So I, like I said, uh, I was born into this very inauthentic kind of existence and this kind of programming where I was born to be a banker. And my dad really dictated a lot of my life and my family in general. And so with my grandma, I always felt this levity where I didn't need to pretend to be anything. She just loved me for who I am. And so I really thought to myself, like, if I want to be surrounded by people like her, you know, and if also if I want to bring that kind of energy into my life, I need to feel like I can actually say exactly how I feel. And is that working for you? Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I love saying exactly how it is. Like, that's to me. It's not exactly how it is to everyone, but it's exactly how it is to me. So, yeah, that really does work. And I think the thing with losing people as well is just and, you know, supporting myself through it is also to make the most of those connections that are around me. So really deepening those relationships, because you know that they're not going to last. You never know when it is going to be. So, you know, make the most of it and look people in the eyes and really feel them and really listen to them. Oh, my grandma was such a big fan of listening. She said listening was the most important skill in this entire life. And so... Well, there is a reason, as a a Persian friend of mine occasionally says, there's a reason why we have one mouth and two ears. Exactly. You know, so I think it's that. So, George, you, some while later, took this concept that you've been working on and you created How Mental. Tell me... What is the mission for How Mental and how does it work? Right. So whilst I was working on this application to help my granddad and to help the world at that point, I was in my co-working space and a friend of mine approached me and she said, George, listen, I know you work in mental health. I'm feeling super depressed. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what I need. Can you help me? And it was a really big moment for me because I realized that as much as I had now learned about mental health and gotten familiar with the space, gotten familiar with the concepts, with what people are working on, what works, what doesn't work, the general public has absolutely no idea. And in our schools, there is absolutely no education around it. Alarm bells just started ringing and I knew that I had to do something to sort of fill this gap between the people and the support because there's so much support out there. And I'd met so many incredible people making incredible things. And I felt like they deserve to be seen, you know, and the people also deserve to find the support itself easily. And, you know, if Apple and Nike can get all this great marketing and branding, why can't mental health companies? So I wanted to lift the voices of the people in the mental health sector. I wanted to make sure they were heard. I wanted to make sure that they were understood as well and sort of translated in a way that people could really grasp and relate to. And so, yeah, so How Mental was all about Uh, from the outset was really about bringing together the different people and organizations in the mental health sector into one place so that everyone could easily find them. And I see it as a movement. I call it a movement because... I know, I love this. We're on a mission, you know. We need to make healthcare and make mental healthcare accessible to everyone. You know, that's the starting point. 
but I believe that it goes a step further than that. From my understanding of economics, I was able to see that you know, GDP is our general measure for success, which means that we're basically tending towards money being our key metric for our direction for society. And how could our well-being be prioritized in a world that prioritizes money above all else? How could the environment be prioritized in a world that prioritizes money above all else? You know, so we need to change our understanding of what is it that we care about in this life? you know, as an individual, but also as a society. And so bringing these people together into one place, whether they be individuals, whether they be organizations, basically anyone that cares about their mind and wants to prioritize their mind, that's the mission. And and the aim is to actually uh, one day create a metric for success, which I call gross domestic well-being. But basically, yeah, you know, being able to to measure it and, and tangibly see how are people doing? How's the planet doing? You know, how are we feeling right now? Well, I think that this really ties into an emerging zeitgeist, whereby organizations, small and large, understand they have to look after their people. Because as you and I have discussed, that does hit the bottom line. That does hit the P&L. People off through illness of whatever kind, extended sick leave, starting jobs and leaving quickly because they're unhappy or they become unwell. This has escalated massively during COVID times. I think as well, there's an awful lot of isolation, right? People in this world, despite being technologically more connected than ever, can feel highly isolated. What would you say when people talk about the kind of isolationism of technology and how it can disconnect people like how does that work in the world of how mental with the tech platform and so forth where people can actually really feel they can get an answer or they can make a connection that is meaningful and useful and helpful to them be it an individual or an organization you know people want to do something that has a purpose people want to do something with intention they don't want to go and work for a company that does nothing you know, and I know a lot of companies think that they do something, but a lot of them are just contributing to something which we already know is harmful or just something which doesn't add any real value. I think that's the kind of shift that we're seeing right now is is one around intention. So I think it's the same thing that we're seeing now when it comes to technology in general. So we need to use technology intentionally. Technology is a tool. We like to say it's technology that's disconnecting us and it's technology that does this, but it's not technology, it's people. It's the way people are using technology that is disconnecting us. And so it's so important that we are getting that right and not just doing things to align with people's uh, wallets, but actually to do things that align with their well-being. So not creating addictive patterns through the technology like actually focusing our attention on building things that are more connective because Facebook, for example, could have been building something around our sense of touch, you know, a million years ago. And I always find it a little bit weird that this little brown kid who was 21 years old at the time had to come up with this idea for, you know, how to make technology, you know, more, more connective. Like I thought that they would have people researching this and making that their priority, but obviously they don't. Not on the radar, right? And tell me, George, obviously during COVID, as we know, I guess there was sort of a collective isolation across the world in some respects. So even if you and your situation are fine, you could feel what was going on by the rules of physics around, right? And across the planet. The um, engagement with high mental rose 
exponentially. What do you think was going on in relation to what you do that caused this incredible growth? It really, it, it did spike a lot. So we we had about 80,000 followers on Instagram and that grew to, I think, over 600,000 in a year. So it's insane. And now we have almost 800,000 followers. We're reaching about 10 million people uh, every single month. And, you know, I think that the thing that makes How Mental special and the reason why people relate to it is because we're not afraid to go there. You know, we talk about everything and anything. And also the way that we talk about it is with a huge dollop of humor because like we all go through it. We all go through these things. We all feel isolated. We all feel, um, you know, we all do stupid things. We all make mistakes. We all are suffering, you know, a lot of the time. And so to be able to actually talk about it in a way that is genuinely relatable to people. And so we use a lot of gifts. We use a lot of memes. I think being able to communicate with people on their level is absolutely the key. And also, you know, just be just be conversational about it. Just talk to them like they're your friend. It is de-stigmatizing because even mental health is just about the well-being of the mind, right? But it, the term itself has got so many negative connotations so people shy away when they see it, right? So it is having those conversations and that's an incredibly productive and constructive and positive thing in my book. But, you know, I think that the main challenge is that because we still have this notion of making money being the priority, you have a lot of new entrants who are kind of playing on those fears and on those insecurities of people and on those boxes that people are, you know, that are really, really harmful potentially to sort of kind of diagnose someone and even just like the idea of diagnosing someone and being like, this is your condition for the rest of your life. You know, science needs to evolve to kind of to keep up with what what is reality. I think that the other thing for us is around innovation. So I think a lot of people are open to the conversation now, but maybe it's just me being like 10 years ahead or something. But I want to have conversations around innovation in this space. I think we need to be a little bit bolder when it comes to actually what we're investing in, both financially and uh, in terms of our time. Because, you know, there are big strides to be made and people that need to be helped now, like not tomorrow or in 10 years time when investors feel like, you know, they've now gotten sort of familiar or comfortable with it. So they're happy to look at, at, at doing something different. It's like, this needs to happen now. And I know in the past you've spoken to investors and they've kind of laughed you out of the room because they weren't, they weren't ready themselves. They weren't evolved enough, if I can yeah. be so unkind to say that. But what sort of response are you getting from the investor market today? I think there's obviously a lot more openness to it. I think that there's still a lot of boxes that people put themselves in, you know, like some investors will say we are natural science investors or life science investors. Yeah, right. And you're just like, what even <laughs> is that? <laughs> Does anyone know? And so, um, you know, and so I think generally speaking, it's, it's a more positive mindset. I just wish that it would evolve a little bit quicker as well. But George, I wanted to talk to you also about, um, you're making me think too about the role of creativity, because I think all of us have a creative part to ourselves and a creative component. And we often don't know what that actually looks like. And I profoundly believe in creativity and business. 
you know, increasingly we're seeing, thankfully, um, you know, innovation units, even in smaller businesses where we have what we would call entrepreneurs, very entrepreneurially minded people in corporates who want to keep the ideas coming and keep creating and trying things. Even if most of them fail, they're like, let's give it a go, right? But in your case, you are also a poet. I mean, seriously, we need more poets. You know how much I love poetry. And an artist. How do you give expression to those forms? And how do you find the time? Over the years of working for myself, I've had to become a lot more honest with myself about what I want from my life because it's very easy for the business to run my entire existence. So I've had to get really, really strict about what those boundaries are. And so for example, I just, I don't work on the weekends. Like I just can't, to be honest, I wish I didn't work, you know, as much as I do even during the week. I don't think that we're machines that work like eight hours flat. Like it just doesn't work like that. And so if I allow myself to take a moment to just pull out my iPad and just start drawing, then it completely it just fills me with life once again and reminds me that I am a multidimensional person. I'm not just my business, which was, you know, one of the major, major things that happened to me when uh, sort of on this journey was, was having to come to terms with that and realizing that burnout was imminent. And it did happen when I wasn't actually realizing myself as a whole. And so poetry I found to be my friend then. And I realized like these relationships that we have with different kinds of creativity that you know may have helped us in in very small ways in our life in general can be harnessed and can be focused on and given that kind of attention you know i sometimes talk about sitting in the place of excitement you know where you're doing something and it just fills you with light even if it's a struggle i mean writing poetry is not exactly easy right or creating art but just sitting with it and getting the energy from it, which you then bring to everything else in your life. You bring it to your relationships, you bring it to your work, your main job or whatever, your your business build. It permeates every which way, right? Definitely. You're also able to kind of say like, I've done something. Because I think especially when you're working for yourself or you're working on a, on a big mission, it can feel like you're not really going anywhere. But if I say to myself, yeah, but, you know, I'm working on that, but I did do a painting yesterday and it's pretty damn cool and I can see it and I can show it to people and I can like hang it up on my wall. So it gives you that sense that you've actually done something. So, George, if you look back over the past few years, what would you say was the biggest epiphany or moment of change for you? I would actually say the moment that I felt burnt out. I think that was the biggest change. But I would say that the change within that was, you know, when I felt burnt out, I started feeling extremely depressed, extremely suicidal. And it was just not somewhere that I'd ever thought that I would be. And so I'd been relying on my brother for quite a long time, you know, in the same way that my grandma used to provide me a lot of support. Uh, my brother became this kind of crutch for me. And so being able to, there was this one moment actually where I asked my brother, I was like, Michael, I was, I was like looking for jobs. I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe I'll do something else. And I was like, Michael, what are my strengths? And, and Michael just sort of <laughs> turns to me and says like, he just says, you know what your strengths are and just walks out of the room. <laughs> Helpful. And I was like, I was like, really? Like, okay. And so that moment for me, it meant a lot because 
it wasn't like I'd suddenly, you know, I felt that he was being rude or anything. I mean, actually, like I was a little bit hurt, but I knew that he'd been supportive of me for so long. But that moment was a realization that, okay, you know, I can't just rely on everyone else's support all the time. I need to support myself. Okay, I know that one. But also the answers are actually all inside me. You know, it wasn't just like, it's about me. And if I can't speak to myself and understand myself, how on earth am I ever going to get anywhere? How on earth am I ever going to choose the right things that I want from my life or to, you know, pick the right partners or, or just choose the right work or anything? Well, I have um, a wonderful former guest called Christine Handy, and she uses a term which I really love, which is these um, moments make us realize it's all an inside job, you know? Oh, yeah. You've been through a lot of change. You're an entrepreneur. You are driving change. You're, you're driving innovation in this market. What does change mean to you today? I think change for me is, is a constant, you know? I think the more that I learn about myself, the more I realize that everything is changing inside me and also changing all around me all the time. So I think being able to understand that change is going to happen and accept that and also be able to find the things in this life that will continue to inspire me and, you know, because change isn't always positive, it isn't always negative. To be honest, it's neither you know, we can, we can assign or judge it in whatever way we want, but no matter what change happens, I want to be the kind of person that's going to accept it, that's going to understand it, and that's going to find what's right for me to be able to continue to make the most of my existence. I love that. That's really beautiful. It's been fantastic to have you on the show. I'm really psyched about the next adventures in the innovative universe of how mental and you you must keep me posted thank you for being with me today i will thank you so much for having me and just for allowing me to feel comfortable being you know being myself and expressing and being weird and just going in lots of different directions that's what i love to do and i just know that i can do that with you so thank you my fabulous guest George Tagtag was so beautifully honest and inspiring to talk to. I'm always amazed by his passion, his knowledge and his refusal to accept the status quo, always with grace and openness. I loved what George said about being his authentic self, being able to do what he loves, but also making sure he can rely on himself too, that he's strong and he has the tools he needs to achieve great things in his life. George's vision for what technology can do in connecting us on a profound level is exciting and groundbreaking. And he's right that the responsibility for using technology in the right way lies with each of us. It was good to see George, the entrepreneur, also challenging the way we measure success. How he looks to focus his business goals on something other than money. That he talks of his mission of how mental is a movement. How wonderful would it be if one day his vision of a new metric for success, a GDW, gross domestic well-being metric, would become the way we measured how well we're doing, how happy our communities were. Such inspiring food for thought. Thank you so much, George, and thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Double Espresso with D. Do connect with me on Instagram at D Double Espresso. I love hearing your feedback. 
and what has resonated with you. And don't forget to join me next week for another amazing guest interview. Until then, au revoir.